Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Dynamic Manufacturing. Since 1955, Dynamic Manufacturing has a relentless commitment to quality and customer service when it comes to your automotive needs. They've been named General Motors Supplier of the Year 22 times. And whether it's remanufacturing, machining, electrification, motorsports, and much more, there's nothing Dynamic Manufacturing can't do. Find them on the web at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. And by Raul Jewelers, who offer the finest in rings, bracelets, earrings, necklaces, and much more since 1982. They specialize in custom design, so if you're looking for that right gift, especially during the holidays, head to Raul Jewelers on Barrington Road in Hoffman Estates, and they're on the web at rawljewelers.com. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats. Look for them at polinamarket.com, and by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dogs and a landmark institution since 1893. They're located at ViennaBeef.com. This week we feature the best of season three, including the rise of a Chicago kid, a career-defining call, a troubled soul on the brink, a very loud memory of a lifetime, and mixing it up with a future coach. What a delight to again interview some wonderful guests, the first of which says he's living a dream life. And who can argue? And for Fox 32's Lou Canellis, it began where I began, sports phone. L- listen, in, in all honesty, when I got the gig, I was ready to transfer out of Loyola because I was miserable commuting back and forth from the South side. I played baseball in high school. I was a pretty good baseball player, had some opportunities to play away, uh, play baseball away at, at school and in college. And dad wouldn't let me go. He wouldn't let me take advantage of scholarship opportunities. I was the oldest of three Greek boys. My dad was a dictator. It was not a democracy. And um, when dad said, listen, I have worked my whole life to send my boys to college. It really doesn't matter. Baseball scholarships don't matter. Um, it, it was a real kick in the you know what, because all the guys that I played ball with in high school went away to school. They went away to University of Illinois. They went to Eastern Illinois. They went to Iowa. And 
I really didn't get a taste of what I was missing until I actually went to Charleston one weekend and spent the weekend at Eastern and U of I in Champaign and realized that I was missing partying, girls, good times, being away from my parents. And when I went away to those schools and I saw the guys I played ball with, I said, my God, this is what I'm missing. I came back. Here's a story that you don't know. I came back. Now, remember, my dad was a dictator. I loved him to death. I had the utmost respect for him. He was built like Charles Atlas, working in a laundry for 60 years. His forearms were the size of my thighs because of pulling out all those dirty clothes that were in the washing machines. And I walked in the house and he said, how was the weekend? And I looked at him and I pointed my finger at him and said, you have ruined my life. And went up to my room and frankly thought he was going to come upstairs and I was going to get my rear end kicked for talking to my dad like that. Cause that didn't happen in the Canellas household. And instead he sat on the bed with me and asked me to explain why I had broken down, why I was so upset, and I did. And then he recommended seeing if I could still play baseball away at those schools, which was now impossible because it had been you know, two years since I had played um, competitively. And uh, I was still, I had been accepted to go to the University of Florida and I was going to go to Gainesville to play around and live the college life. And at that point, Brian Wheeler, who I worked with at WLUW, voice of the Trailblazers for 16 years. George backing up. Miller doesn't want to pick. Dame going for the win. A three-pointer for the game. Yeah! Voice of the Loyola Ramblers for 20 years. Lou Canellis' old roommate. But Lou Canellis's classmate at Loyola, Brian recommended I send a tape to Fred Hubner at Sports Phone, and I got hired two weeks before I was supposed to leave for Gainesville. And Dad said, "You know what? I'm going to let you make the decision. But if you choose to stay home and take the job at Sports Phone, I will help you get an apartment in the Gold Coast so you can walk." To sports phone at the Hancock building and I stayed and uh, the rest is history you know truthfully it's the reason it's one of the big reasons why I've enjoyed the success I've had uh, in my career because I created my career then starting as a junior in college one other quick note one other quick note I have to let you know this when I was going to Oaklawn High School Chuck Swarsky I was the editor of my student newspaper, the Spartanite, and the co I was the co-sports editor of the student newspaper with David Wills, Dave, the longtime pregame, between innings, postgame host of the White Sox on AM 1000, who is now the voice of the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. The bat almost hit him in the back on that follow through. And the 1-2 pitch, check swing, blue. Can you believe this? Out towards the left side of the infield and caught over the shoulder by the pitcher Yarbrough. Dave and I were best friends growing up. Went to kindergarten together, grade school together, Oakland High School together. Lived a block and a half from each other. All right. Dave and I were the co-sports editors. And Swirsk came and spoke to the Spartanite staff. 
And Schwarzk then allowed me to go to WLUP, where he was a sportscaster. And I got to sit in with the Schwarzk and watch him do sports with Sky Daniels in Afternoon Drive. Sky Daniels. And that's where I fell in love. I truly fell in love with the business. And the Schwarzk told me the three schools that I should, four schools I should consider going to, Syracuse, no way dad was going to let me go to Syracuse, New York. Northwestern, unfortunately, lose grades weren't good enough to get into Northwestern. Ohio U, because he was an Ohio U alum. I wasn't going to go, you know, be a Bobcat. And Loyola, because they had just started this communications program. And ironically, my uncle Nick Cladis was an All-American basketball player at Loyola. And I chose Loyola. So if I was to give anyone credit for getting me into the business, it'd be the Swirsk. And then my guys that I worked with at Sportsphone that started back in 1984, that really had me fall in love with the business. Lou Canellis has worked closely with Jeff Joniak, the voice of the Bears, for over 20 years. And it was thanks to a spectacular return specialist, he came up with a phrase that is now part of our sports lexicon. From his five, Hester starts at the 10, veering right now, angling to the middle at the 20, hits the gas, 25-30, forget it! Nobody's going to get him! Long gone! Devin <laughs> Hester, you are ridiculous! 10-5, dancing to the end zone! Touchdown! Touchdown Bears! It was never planned, but I use that word repeatedly. That is my stock answer because you've known me a long time. I usually pair it with a, a, a no-no word with it. So uh, usually <laughs> something is effing ridiculous. Um, and I, I say that many times, many, many, many times. But I think it just caught me so off guard. It was St. Louis in 2006, his rookie year, the Super Bowl year for the Bears. And it was the second, I believe it was the second, return touchdown that game. And I knew it was going to happen. And that's why it just shook me and had me really an out-of-body experience when you think about it. Because, you know, it's hard not to be a fan when you're calling games. But you can't be. You, you got to call the game. Otherwise, you're going to miss a lot. And I just remember the gap between where he caught the ball and the closest defender. And I'm like, this is ring it up. And in my mind, I'm already building up. And it, it took a matter of seconds for him to get in the end zone, and I just let loose. Because it was the second one. How many times are teams going to kick to him? And I think it was just that exuberance and really a, a stunning reality that, you know, this guy is unique and special. And I just ripped out Devin Hester. I just draw, drawn out, Devin Hester, you are ridiculous. Because I remember in St. Louis – the, the ceiling in the, in the broadcast booth, the old St. Louis RCA Dome, Tom would always hit his head on the ceiling because it, it just, <laughs> he'd get up out of his chair and hit his head because it was just so low. And the TVs were hanging right near our, near our head as well. So you could hit your head on the TV. And I glanced up at the television and the television broadcast had a, uh, a cutaway shot of Lovey Smith. And I, and I just used it and I said, Lovey Smith's jaw just literally dropped. Because that's what it was. He was in stunned amazement, or pardon Jim Durham, stunned silence. You know, I mean, it was just, it was, and so I didn't think anything of it. I, I honestly thought nothing of it. Because I say that word all the time. No big deal. So I get down, 
to get on the team bus to get to the airport to ride home. And the first person I see is Mike Mulligan, who was working at, at the paper at that time before his radio career. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, the Bears, you know, I, I think he was saying they were lucky to win or something like that. I don't remember the outcome of the game in terms of the score. Uh, but he goes, oh, yeah, your call, your call, your call. I go, what call? And he goes, oh, yeah, come on, don't be that way. But, you know, it's all over the place. And I'm like, is the Hester one? And that's all I, that's all I said. And the next morning, the world changed, you know, for me, honestly, because that, that became craziness. Everybody stopping you on the street. You know, a funny story about my good friend and your good friend, Luke Canellis. To this day, people get us confused when we're out of town or even downtown. And recently, uh, a guy in Miami stopped him and he said, hey, Jeff, Joe, give me a you are ridiculous. So he's sick of it now to the point that he just does not say he's not <laughs> Jeff Jones. Okay? Now, frankly, he can't deliver it like I can deliver it because I've been working on that for a lifetime in my daily language. So, you know, Lou, you are ridiculous. Hey, did you ever realize that ridiculous would mushroom into what no. it is even now? No, 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 no. I, I still get it I, every day. There's somebody, everybody, there's a, I'll go to a bar. Hey, you know, these guys that want to buy you a shot, they say you're ridiculous. You know, they, they recognize you or whatever. And I just think it's it's hilarious because um, it's an unintended uh, reality. But, you know, that year I started out with something I did come up with with Devin Hester. That was the Green Bay game, the opener, and he returned to kick off in that game to start his career, and I called him the Windy City Flyer. Sends it high up in the air. It's going to back up Devin Hester to his 16-yard line. He's going to return it. He's going to run right, and with a burst to the 25-30, right side midfield. Got to block that field to the 40, 30, 20, 15, 10. No chance. Goodbye. Touchdown. Welcome to the NFL. The Windy City Flyer, Devin Hester, takes it back 84 yards, baby. I thought that was a, a pretty good nickname for a guy who ran a 4-2-40 and had moves like I've never seen since Gail Sayers. And, you know, that that I thought was going to stick. And here's a story you don't know. I'm at a Bears fan convention a couple of years later, and I literally stop in mid-MC mode because there's a guy in the front seat with a shirt that says Windy City Flyer in the Chicago skyline. Now, for years, people told me, hey, you got to quantify your, your language. Like, you, you know, monetize it, you know, make money. Mm -hmm. And I never once thought about doing that. I'm not the world's uh, greatest capitalist, I guess. But I stopped. I pulled away the mic. I went, hey, buddy, where'd you get that shirt? What do you mean? I got it at Walgreens. Typical Bears fan. I got it at Walgreens. And I was so ticked off. I'm like, oh, my gosh. But Devin, Devin once told me he, when he was living here in Chicago, he had a mural painted of the Chicago skyline and Windy City Flyer on his wall in his house. I thought that was pretty cool. You know, really and truly, it was an apt description because the NFL it really hadn't experienced a player so explosive as him since Deion Sanders and, and of course, Gail Sayers. I've contended this for years now, Jeff. Devin Hester belongs in the Hall of Fame. If yeah. for no reason, he changed the game. No, no, that's 100% accurate. I've said it a million times. He single-handedly changed the way teams build their special teams units, both punt and kickoff return seriously they had to deal with this guy and you know what everybody stopped kicking to him for a while but they if a miss punt miss hit i mean happens i mean i remember the denver game todd sauerbrunn the former bears punter you know miss hit a second time to devon and he just he, he leaped sauerbrunn to get in, get into the open field and finish the job uh 
you know, and every player that blocked for him couldn't wait to get out there. And you name it, they were out there. Charles Tillman must have been on almost every one of those. He couldn't wait. First hand up. And that, and that was the true spirit of Devin. Everybody got off, up, up off the bench, and they want to watch this guy go to work. And, there, you know, it, you, what, you had to be ready. The Super Bowl. All I was ner- First of all, what little kid grows up thinking they're going to call a Super Bowl? Not this one. And I'm there, and I had my uncle there, my, my family, and I was a nervous wreck. I remember walking up into the stands before the game to see my uncle, who was very close to me. My dad died young, and he was, he was like a dad to me. And, and I just started bawling. And all these fans, you know, they, they recognized me as I walked up there, and he had never witnessed this before. You should have seen the tears in his eyes. So I'm an emotional wreck. Uh, we ran an interview with Mike Brown uh, before the game, Saturday night before the Super Bowl, he says, uh, Joniak, grab your recorder. I'm like, what? So we went out by the pool in Miami at the airport hotel, and he's bawling his eyes out, saying how much he wishes he was able to play in that game, telling me how many people love him and that, you know, it may not be the most important thing, but it's important to him that, you know, he, he wish he would have played. And it was so emotional. First thing we played in our broadcast before the Super Bowl not a dry eye in there. We're talking Hilgenberg, Schwantz, even Tom Thayer. It was an emotional experience, honestly. So opening kickoff, all I want to do is, you know, flash bulbs pulping and we're underway at, at, at Miami. And never once, never once did I consider he would take the opening kickoff of the Super Bowl, which never been done and has not been done since for a touchdown. So I was nervous. And as soon as he made a patented cut in the middle of the field, I said, Oh my God, one half of my brain is thinking, this is going to go. You got to capture this moment. It's the Super Bowl. And the other one, you're describing it. Vinatieri on the approach platform, popping here in Miami. It sails to the far side around the eight yard line to Hester. Under it and to the middle with the 15 to the 20, breaks free of the 25 to the 30, to the outside, 40, midfield, 40, 30 of the coach, 20, 15, Hester five. And I swear it was a slow motion, out of body experience. And I just let it rip. And I blew out my voice on that call. And Devin was looking up at the scoreboard. And I'm like, come on, get there, get there, get there. And I just let loose. And I took, it took one year for me to listen to that broadcast because I was so fearful that I didn't give it its due. Listen up, OEMs. First impressions are lasting ones. Dynamic Manufacturing's impressive complex in Hillside, Illinois, includes nearly a million square feet of operating space. I had a chance to view some of it, and I was overwhelmed by the organization, technology, and dedicated workforce. Dynamic Manufacturing provides solutions for engineering, manufacturing, machining, and logistics, and they can re-energize your electric and energy storage systems. They can machine any project, no matter the size. And when it comes to motorsports, they're your trusted partner for chasing podiums with their custom torque converters. Dynamic Manufacturing is your one-stop for all your remanufacturing needs, and they can't wait to engineer a custom solution for getting maximum value from experienced parts. Dynamic Manufacturing, where there's nothing they can't do.
The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return to the best of season three on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Dan McNeil is honest to a fault. He's admitted to mistakes that cost him several jobs. But the longtime Chicago sports talk show host has tackled deeper problems than his job. Much deeper. I'm a suicide survivor. When I was 18, my mother took her own life on her second attempt. I knew I was different in fifth grade. As, as you know, young as a 10-year-old, um, I woke up one morning, and I remember it so vividly. It was a Thursday morning in the spring of 71. And it was the first nice day of the spring. And I felt paralyzed. And I didn't want to go to school. And I told my parents, I'm not going to school today. I didn't tell them I'm sick. I said, I'm not going to school today. Oh, why? You sick? Yeah, but I couldn't really define what was what was ailing me. What I wanted was my door locked and my 45 collection, my baseball cards and total isolation. And I knew that wasn't right because physically I felt fine, except for this almost paralyzing need to not participate today. I don't want to be consumed by other humans today. Thank you. I'm not mad. I'm not drunk. I'm 11. I'm just low. That's, that's physiological. That's brain chemistry. That's not imagined. And fortunately, people have become smarter to what mental illness is. And Fact is, I have a brain chemistry deficiency. Fortunately, I finally started treating it about 20 years ago. But I inherited this from my mother, along with my, you know, uh, predisposed condition to be an addict. Um, I've loved weed since I was a teenager. And unfortunately, that graduated to a lot more dangerous substances. I had an unhealthy relationship with Coke in the late 90s. I was trying to numb the pain of my middle son's autism. And uh, in 99, it was my way of coping with what the score did. And I would do a show that made me sad with Dan Jiggets. And on a Tuesday night, I'd wind up in a saloon in Hammond until 4am snorting blow. Um, then it became pain meds after I had my spine fused in, in 07. And I'd had a very platonic relationship with opioids up to that point. Never really found them to be magical. But uh, after the fusion, I discovered the little 10 milligram Norco, the little yellow birds, as I called them. Well, that was something different than anything I'd experienced before. And that was, that was a high that, that really drew me in and as needed on the bottle didn't apply to me. And I wrestled for the next six or seven years with, with that as my primary addiction. And, uh, 
and my bottom isn't as bad as some others. Um, my, but you know, a bottom's a bottom. Mine, mine is want to be alone. Mine is, my bottom is not wanting to be in touch with anybody other than my kids and my wife to go away and hide and not give back when what truly makes me happy is being a part of a fraternity and a community, whether it's with my, my high school pals or my radio fraternity, my fantasy football league, my audience. I like that. I thrive on that. But when I was in the throes of that, that opioid addiction, I wanted nothing to do with that. I was rejecting what made me happy for what numbed pain. And, uh, and it's, it's a sad place to be. Fortunately, and never with me, flirted with thoughts of suicide. Um, I get asked that a lot. The, the you know, metrics do support uh, that I would be a candidate for it. Sons and daughters of parents who kill themselves are more likely to kill themselves. But that's not an option for me. And uh, I have a, a 28 year old son <laughs> who's like a best buddy and I will not do to him. He's autistic, my Patrick. Uh, I'm, I'm his best friend. And uh, I, it's just, you know, I don't mean to make light of it, but I just, I, I shrug with, with a smirk the idea of, of me being suicidal. And I know I shouldn't because of my, my histories. Uh, I'm rambling here, George. This topic tends to do that to me because it exhausts me. And uh, it's something hard to deal with. But I'm happy today, more than I'm sad. I, uh, I have treated my depression with, with chemicals and talk therapy. Um, those chemicals being mood-stabilizing drugs. It's a very mild mood-stabilizer called Lamotrigine. And, um, and I don't use opioids and I haven't, I haven't danced with the devil that is cocaine, knock on wood in many, many years. And because I'm, uh, I'm a little bit of a, a, a wimp, I, I don't like alcohol that much because I, I don't like to be hung over the next day. So I will smoke my weed and enjoy a diet Pepsi and be grateful for every day I have. As we tape this in August, Suicide Prevention Week takes place in early September, and it's obviously, it's a very significant date for you. Yeah, it is, because, you know, you don't understand it to be as, as capable of affecting you as deeply as it will when, it, when it's going on, but when, when your mom isn't available, as my mom was not throughout my life, my first memory of that being at the age of five, when she first was institutionalized. Um, what came with her suicide was, and I didn't know it consciously, it took me more than 20 years and a good five or six years of hard therapy to recognize that she... Um, she helped me to not trust the female gender. I thought that uh, women will ultimately leave me. I can't count on women because my mom wasn't available and my older sister was not available. She was a troubled kid 
And uh, you start to think, I don't have anything to offer females. I'm a guy's guy. It was easy for me to think that relatively early in life. I didn't know I was thinking that. I was that I would would actually wind up exhibiting behaviors that that lead you to that thing. But uh, yeah, it'll uh, it'll fuck you up, and it's it's something that I wish I would have sought therapy for it at the time more than I did. Um, I only a couple of times talked to a counselor about my mom's suicide, and I, I would have been smart to do it way more than that. Who doesn't love jewelry? Who wouldn't love Rawl Jewelers? Family owned and operated for nearly 40 years, Rawl Jewelers offers the very best in fine jewelry and engagement rings, including mined and lab-grown diamonds. And they utilize the latest technology and offer jewelry repair on the premises. Rawl Jewelers has a glittering array of rings, necklaces, earrings, bracelets, and watches, and offers custom-designed jewelry on the premises. And if you have the most specific questions, Rawl Jewelers has four graduate gemologists on staff. With over 200 years of combined experience and expertise, it's no wonder Rawl Jewelers is one of the leading shops of its kind. This is where my wife and I got our wedding bands many years ago, and it's safe to say, when you walk in as a customer, you're going to leave as a friend. Rawl Jewelers is located at 3001 Barrington Road in Hoffman Estates, right off I-90 West. Rawl Jewelers, when only the very best will do. He's one of a kind. Stacey King has carved out a very popular career as the Chicago Bulls television analyst after a nine-year NBA career that included three titles with the Bulls. But the story of how he impressed them might leave you quite surprised. So then Doug says, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna give you some resistance now. We're gonna bring in somebody, put a little resistance on you. And you know, he doesn't, he doesn't tell me who's coming in. So here comes this guy, we were at the uh, multiplex. And here comes this guy, he's gangly, he's got grayish hair, he looks older. And I just assumed it was Dave Corzine, because I, I never seen Dave mm -hmm. Corzine up close, and I'd never seen, met him in person, I just saw him on TV, so I assumed it was Dave Corzine, because he was a big guy, he's like 6'10", so I said, okay. But he was a little skinnier than I, I seen Dave Corzine, so I said, well, maybe TV puts a little bit of extra weight on you, so um, it's Dave Corzine. So we're in there. And he's battling with me. He's banging me. He's banging me. And I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, this is supposed to be like really non-contact, but this guy is playing like we're in the finals. And so I told him to take it easy. Like, hey, big fella, take it easy. Like, you know, I'm not trying to get hurt out here. And he's like, shut up and play. <laughs> and and I, I looked at him like confused. Like, I'm like, who who in the hell do you think you're talking to? <laughs> and I'm thinking, Dave Corzine, I'm finna, I'm finna really just go off on you. And so I'm, I'm starting to make a move, George. They said, you know, Tex Winter wanted me to make a move, you know, one dribble to the middle and then drop step baseline. So I did it. And this guy, you know, I thought it was Dave Corzine was banging the crap out of me. So I, as I drop step baseline to go up to dunk the ball, he pushed me. He pushed me when I was in the air. And then I, I fell on the ground. I fell on my, on my hip. And I got up and I said, you know, you know, what the F are you doing? Are you trying to hurt me? I go, man, are you, are you a fool? And he's like, shut up and play. And he called me the P word. And so I was like, what did you say? And he said, shut up and play. Quit crying. 
And I said, okay, cool. Okay, that's how we're going to play. So I thought this was one of those things, like, have you ever seen Robbie Benson's one-on-one? Yes. Remember that movie? I sure do. Remember when when, when Robbie Benson's coach brought this bully out to bully him and, and try I to do. make him quit? That's That was what that was exactly kind of how that scenario was. Settle down over there. I suppose you didn't see that. Shut up, Steele. Play ball. Son of a bitch! You son of a bitch! That's enough. What you gentlemen have just witnessed is an exhibition of mental warfare, where one player psychs another player right out of the ball game. And so I said, cool. Okay, that's how we're going to play. So, so uh, you know, Doug said, run that play again. Run that same play, you know, one, one dribble to the middle drop step. So I said, cool, I'm going to get Corzine. So I did the same move. And this time as I drop step, I came, I hit him with the elbow. Like I hit him right in the jaw with the elbow and he fell backwards. And then I dunked the ball and I took the ball and I said, now you play. And I called him the P word and I threw the ball at him. And then we, and then he charged me. It's like, and then they had to separate us. Like we literally was getting ready to come to blows. And so they broke it up. Jerry's like, stop, stop. Please go to shower, go take a shower. So Eric Helen, who was the assistant uh, to Al Vermeil, um, our string coaches, he grabs me. And I think Eric at the time was probably 25 years old. So he was a young kid. And uh, so we're walking out and he says, hey, he goes, man, you're feisty, man. I, I like that. Well, we need that on our team because we're facing the Pistons and we need some tough guys, you know. And I say, hey, look, man, I said, I didn't come here to fight anybody. But I said, I didn't come here to run. And, you know, if you start something, you better be able to finish. And I said, I wasn't playing with Corzine. I, I would bust Corzine's ass. And so, so he starts laughing. And I remember Doug and all them laughing, too, because they had heard me say Corzine. And they were all laughing, but I didn't know what they were laughing about. I think they were, I thought they were just laughing at the, the, the thought of, I'm getting ready to fight somebody. You know, here I am, I'm supposed to be on a visit. And it's supposed to be an easy workout. I'm getting ready to get into a fight with their, their player, Dave Corzine. So Eric tells me, he says, hey, he goes, he goes, he goes, oh, my God, no, that's not Dave Corzine. And I said, what do you mean that's not Dave Corzine? I know Dave Corzine. He's, he's the center. He's like, no, that's not Dave Corzine. He said, have you ever, you ever uh, heard of Phil Jackson? And I said, no. Uh, Jackson uh, took away the shot, so he had to pass it and block the shot, actually, and went after the loose ball. Now, that's good when you can block a shot and come over the ball. A lot of guys will block the shot, knock out of bounds. And uh, he said he played on the Knicks championship team, 71. He's an assistant coach. And, I, and when he said assistant coach, I was like, oh, my God. Like, all the life George went out of me. I said to myself, they're not going to draft me. <laughs> they're not going to draft me. So I go back, shower. I come back. We go into uh, in the office, the coach's office at the Multiplex, which was very small. And Jerry and them were sitting there waiting for me. And uh, Jerry commenced to kind of dressing me down a little bit. He says to me, he says, um, you can't do that. You know, if we're playing the Pistons, which we know this is what they do. These are tactics they do. They want to take you out of the game mentally. And if you get ejected, you're not helping our team. So you can't do that. And I, and I told Jerry, point blank in his face. I said, Jerry, I, I mean, it's Mr. Krause. I, I, I want to apologize to you. I said, but if someone hits me, I'm hitting the back. If someone elbow, elbows me in the face, I'm elbowing them back in the face. So then you might not want to draft me then because that's the kind of player I'm going to be. And, and so Doug sits in the back and he's like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. 
if you are here at six, Stacey King, we are drafting you. That's what he told me. No one, I mean no one, does hot dogs better than Vienna beef. That's because they've been doing them since 1893. Imagine biting into a delicious all-beef Vienna hot dog, dragged through the garden which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt, and just try that on one of their Polish sausages. Vienna products are available everywhere, from your supermarkets, restaurants, the ballparks, and zoos, just to mention a few, and you can purchase them online at ViennaBeef.com. And look for their farm acres, chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. Ever been to the Polina Market? If not, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and much more since 1949. Their steaks are top of the line, but there's also chicken, fish, and those mouth-watering sausages. And you might spend hours just perusing their frozen food section, all made fresh. And now, the expanded Polina Market offers beer, wine, and sandwiches. It's become a one-stop shop, making your in-store experience well worth your time. And you can still order online. I've been shopping here since 1984. Polina Market is simply the best and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. And finally, a story from the soundtrack of the NHL. The irresistible and seemingly irreplaceable Doc Emmerich takes us back to an historic, if not spine-tingly, event at the old Chicago Stadium. John Davidson and I are in the organ loft at Chicago Stadium in the Stanley Cup final. It is Chicago against Pittsburgh. And that was where we decided to do our open. In the wonderful atmosphere of Chicago Stadium, where many fans stand the whole game, there aren't many bad seats, and we've got one of the best ones for the start of everything tonight. Hi, everybody, along with John Davidson, I'm Mike Emmerich, and you're witnessing some NHL Stanley Cup history. Never before has there been a playoff game in June, but we're having one tonight. Uh, Jiggs McDonald and Bill Clement were doing the play-by-play of the game, and John and I were to do the intermissions. And it was uh, the 1992 Stanley Cup final on Sports Channel America. And I had arranged with our producer, John Shannon, that after John and I did the open, that Wayne Mesmer would come on camera with me and talk about what it was like to sing the anthem just before he was going to do it. See this face? You may not have seen this face before these playoffs, but most hockey fans have, and they've heard the wonderful voice of Wayne Mesper. Wayne, the players have a warm-up before the game. Do you warm up, and if so, where do you do it? I uh, kind of swing from a rope, Mike, and uh, do a Tarzan yell and try and make a, make a sound you can hear over this crowd. And uh, I'd love to chat, but it's showtime here at the old stadium, so I better go sing. All right, the game doesn't start until he says it's going to start, and he says it's going to start right now. I've always been fascinated ever since I believe it was in 1985 that the Chicago fans applaud solidly through the national anthem and anyone that arrives there that's never seen a Blackhawks game is startled for the first time because they don't realize 
what all the noise during the anthem is about. And people have told me that they, they were a little shocked about that until, they, until someone next to them said, this is what we do here. Well, anyway, uh, so John and I do our customary open and John talks eloquently as usual about the players. And then Wayne steps over on cue and I talk to him about um, his going to Illinois Wesleyan and, uh, and what it's like to stand there. And he talks about the crowd and how it is very difficult for him to hear himself because of the noise at Chicago Stadium. And anyone who saw a game there and saw and heard the anthem sung there realized that the roof was such that it, way, it may not have been perfect for concerts, but it was wonderful for sports events because the sound just rumbled through that place. Uh, that one, I have never told anybody. It was ear splitting and particularly in 1991 during the, um, there was the All-Star game. And of course, that's when the troops were overseas. And I don't think it's ever been louder. And it started from the very beginning. And I think that's when America really got a chance to understand what that was all about. I was in Chicago at United Center. Now, Eddie Belfour was present that day that you were talking about at the All-Star game. And he was interviewed during the game because as I recall, he should have been on the All-Star team, but he was not. And that was a subject of controversy. I'm going from my memory here, but I, I was sitting at home at that time recovering from cancer surgery, but I was watching the telecast that day and I was very much taken by the display as well. So now years pass. I'm at United Center because the Blackhawks have invited us to go to a suite because uh, there are several of us in town, uh, Chris Chelios, Ed Snyder, um, Rob Ryan Souter. I'm sorry, not Ryan Souter. Um, Gary Souter. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, uh, because we are the next night being inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. So we're there to watch the Sharks play the Blackhawks um, in a game at United Center. And so the anthem is about to start and the chords, opening chords have not been struck yet but I sense everyone is starting to gather around and, and both teams are around tapping their goaltender good luck and then they're gonna to go to the blue line. So immediately I walk out the door of the suite because I wanna be out in the crowd to hear the whole po uh, possibility of uh, what the uh, emotion of the anthem is gonna be like. So I step into the aisle uh, in the lower bowl and right behind me is Ed Belfour. I said, Eddie, what are you doing out here? He said, I'm not missing this. And I thought to myself, how many times has this guy been in uniform and heard the national anthem at either Chicago Stadium or here? And he's not going to miss it this one more time as a civilian. Uh, but that just shows you what it's like. I was talking with one of the equipment managers uh, of one of the other teams um, that came into United Center. We were talking about the anthem, and he said, one afternoon, we were there for a game against the Blackhawks, and the game was on national television, and during the anthem, the glass behind our bench was shaking, and I looked, and nobody was touching it. That's how the place <laughs> rumbled. 
And he said, it has an effect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. My thanks to Portland Trailblazers TV, the Tampa Rays Radio Network, WBBM Radio in Chicago, One-on-One -on -one, the Movie, the New York Knicks Radio Network, and NBC Sports for those great highlights. Join us next week for the best of year one of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. And thanks as always to TJ Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing and mixing, and Nicholas Tochi for our graphic designs. And to our generous sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing, where there's nothing they can't do. And Raul Jewelers, top jewelers in the northwest suburbs on Barrington Road and Hoffman Estates. Come in as a customer, leave as a friend. Also, the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats and much more. And by the Vienna Beef Company, home of Chicago's hot dog and an institution since 1893. Tune in next week for another fascinating episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman. And that's all she wrote. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.